Welcome to Comics and Chronic, everyone. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jake F.H. As always, I am joined by Anthony Iannaccio and Cody Willaka-Cannon. Today, we have a very special guest on our show. He is a screenwriter, producer, comic book writer. He's written for shows such as My Wife and Kids, Everybody Hates Chris, Marvel's Runaways, Hulu's Wu-Tang, and American Saga, and of course, Adult Swim's critically acclaimed The Boondocks. Please welcome to the show, Rodney Barnes. Welcome. Ooh, what's up, welcome, gentlemen. What's happening? What's what happening? is up, man? <laughs> so yeah, I did some research and Philadelphia came up, and that's what ah. we did. That's what we did our two episodes ago on was Philadelphia. Okay. Yes, I heard part of it. Nice. Yeah, well, yeah. It's awesome. Like we. Thank we you. It. Thank you. We're yeah. all big fans. So glad we came across it. I have to say, I love Cody's voice. <laughs> I want Thank Cody you. to go on the road with me and open for me and just introduce me to the seven people that show up at the signings. I want <laughs> Cody to do my intro. Like, Dude, yes. I would be honored. I would be honored. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, we came across your comic. We all loved it. Um, what, uh, what? Brought you, we, I read the foreword where you were like inspired by Hamilton uh, with the twist. Um, how many times have you been to see Hamilton? Cause I, and in the foreword, I think you said like six. It's up to about 23 oh, right wow. now. Nice. I lost track because of uh, the COVID and they shut, uh, they shut theater down. So I haven't been able to go. So I think in the twenties, in the twenties, someplace in the twenties. That's, that's incredible. That, that, By the way, incredible. I love I love They Live. That's a movie I've seen, and I love that movie. There you go. There you go. I love They Live too. As so much that I'm wearing, They Live. So yeah, I love those. <laughs> one I of love the best fight scenes. John Carpenter. Yeah, the Roddy Piper, uh, Keith David. Keith David. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a it, great fight. It's, it's funny like that rep- you say. Sorry, it's it's funny that you say you want Cody to uh, open for you. He's actually a really good stand-up comedian. So yeah. I have no doubt that voice is a voice. <laughs> That's a voice over voice. There's a myriad of things when you hear that voice that you think of. That so I'm not surprised at all. Nice. That's awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> so we there, there's so much to talk about. Uh, our main focus is of course Philadelphia, but you've been writing comics. Uh, you did the run on the Falcon. I did a short run on Falcon, um, and then I did Lando, Double or Nothing. That was a prequel to the solo movie yeah. of uh, what Lando was doing up until that point. Then I, I do an ongoing book called Queen Credible for Lionforge, Oni Boom. Press. Boom. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, and then I do Philadelphia, and soon a bunch of others, but yes. Ooh. Can you tell us about something that might be coming out that... There is a Philadelphia spinoff that is coming in the months to come. Um, the way image works, you have to have three books in before they will uh, solicit. So I'm working on the third script as we speak. Um, I've got, I have one. Uh, I've got one hard copy. Jason and I do um, Nita Hall's Nightmare Ooh. Blow. Oh, nice. Jason and I do uh, Galley's of uh, the books that we do so we can see what it looks like as a book and not just digitally because it's still, you want to see how we feel in the reader's hands and, you know, how it looks. Um, Philadelphia, especially the paper quality is great. I love how it feels in my hands. 
Yeah, Jason, the, anything that's art-wise or, you know, paper quality or cover any variant artist, that's all Jason Sean Alexander. He's, he's responsible um, for all of that. As soon as I saw opened Philadelphia, I instantly recognized uh, the art from 30 days of night. Did you approach him for a collaboration or Jason wanted me to tell you guys, he did not do 30 days of night. He did spawn. Oh, Ben Temple Smith did 30 days of night and Jason was a spawn artist. He listened okay. to you guys before I listened to you. He said, make sure you tell those guys. I'm not Ben Temple Smith. <laughs> nothing against Ben Temple Smith. Right. Everybody yeah. loves Ben Temple Smith. But yeah, he does. He did Spawn. Uh, he did a run of Spawn up until now. And I think he still does covers, but I'm not sure. I'll take responsibility nice. for that. That was my bad. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Um, Jason lives a mile away from me, or I live a mile away from him. And um, I got hired to interview him for an art book because he's a fine artist as well as an illustrator of uh, comics. And we sort of hit it off. And every couple of weeks or once a month, we would get together and go to restaurants and talk. And I would pitch him ideas and he would pitch me ideas and we would hate each other's ideas. (laughs) (laughs) One night he started, uh, he was drinking, he was drinking whiskey and I was pitching him Philadelphia. And he kept listening. He listened beyond what he usually listens. I can usually tell his eyes glass over and he just wants me to stop talking. But this time he seemed like he was interested in some way. And um, the next day he called me and he said, you know, that that vampire thing you were talking about, um, have you written it down? And I said, you know, it's in my head and blah, blah, blah. He said, you should write it down. I think we could do that one together. And so, um, uh, he pitched it. I think he pitched it to Image. And the pitch was a pitch that I had given him that it was Sanford and Son meets Hamilton meets Dracula. <laughs> nice. And he said that was the log line that sort of sold it and got it in. And um, so there you go. But I always thought his art was perfect for the tone that I was trying to strike. You know, he has an atmospheric, moody kind of quality to his work that... Um, that just even when it's not on the page, there's a tension that's there. There's an eeriness that's there. And I sort of wanted that. Was do you find it to be challenging sometimes uh, working with any artist as far as like their art style or just what they draw for each panel matching what you had in your head when you wrote mm-hmm. the script? No, the, the way it works with Jason and I, I just kind of put the information that I want on the page and he decides how he's going to structure it all. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm doing Marvel work, um, you know, I sort of describe it like I would on a TV show, like exactly what goes in each panel. But, you know, Jason and I are a little bit looser because um, I'm such a fan of his work that sometimes I write to what I want to see him draw. (laughs) It's like there's a couple. Anytime you see a double page spread, that's me wanting like a couple of pages from Jason that I'm eventually going to frame and put on my wall in my (laughs) office. So there you go. I really like that working relationship. That's really cool. Oh, we hate each other. I mean, Jason has called me every name that will damn near every name that you could possibly call me. Uh, And likewise, I mean, we go through text fights. Uh, We had a little uh, text fight this morning. And then we typically make up like if we fight on a Monday, we'll make up by Wednesday 
And then by Saturday, you can feel Monday coming. It's a weird flow uh, to our relationship. But, you know, it's like brothers in a way. Like, you know, I can I can say what I want to say about it, but nobody else can. So, yeah, nice. it's a thing. so yeah. I had a uh, I had a specific question and that I was curious about. I was wondering was vampire in Brooklyn and or interview with the vampire in any way an influence on Philadelphia, especially in regards to John Adams's backstory of becoming a vampire when he goes to the uh, Caribbean? No. And yes. Um, when I first came to Hollywood, Philadelphia uh, has been around for a while in my head. So I came to Hollywood in 1995 from Maryland and I wrote, the movie version that's nothing like you know the Philadelphia book now, and I had a really big uh, movie producer um, who's if I said his name, you guys would know exactly who I'm talking about, uh, who was interested in buying it, and he said, um, you know, it's only one problem: it's too many black people. And <laughs> he said, if you could take like a third of the black people out, I think we could make this movie. And I couldn't figure out, it was set in Compton at the time. And I said, well, maybe old Compton, there were more white people. I could add more cops and <laughs> a police station or we could start in school. I don't know uh, how to add more. And so, um, you know, it kind of fell apart. He said, you know, if Eddie Murphy couldn't make vampire and Brooklyn work, I don't think the world really wants to see black vampires. And that sort of killed it. So yeah. no to the vampire Brooklyn side. Yes to the Anne Rice side, because I'm a huge Anne Rice fan. And there was a thing that she does with like Memnock the Devil or Armand or a lot of her vampires go through time. So you see a little bit of history in the backdrop. It's not like Philadelphia where the history is at the fore. Um, it's in the background. And so when I was reading her books, I was sort of like, what if you kind of flipped it to where history was sort of driving the story, not just vampires witnessing history as sort of being passive observers. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, uh, out of the three of us, I'm a huge fan of, uh, the boondocks it was like came up when i was just out of high school and just like had a huge impact on my life um how was like writing all of these characters like magnificent and stuff like that did you have the voice actors in mind like the rappers were they an influence in like the character writing or not, not really unless it was personal i think you know some of uh like carl jones uh played mm -hmm. some of those characters and he was actively involved in some the creative process but more often than not you know you write the stuff and in animation in general uh, unless you're doing like South Park, where the creators are doing the voices or Family Guy, where the creators doing the voices, you write the stuff and then it's cast to, gotcha. to that. So there you go. What uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, because what comics did you grow up reading? It was weird because, you know, I'm older than you guys. So I when I first was reading comics, it was for the art and I loved Neil Adams. And for a yeah. while, Neil Adams seemingly was drawing every cover for DC Comics. So, you know, I learned very quickly that sometimes if he did the cover, he didn't do the art on the inside. But <laughs> those Neil Adams, Batmans and Detectives and Green Lanterns and that stuff. Uh, and then I had Mike Grell, who was kind of a knockoff Neil Adams. Um, 
who I love, nothing, I love Neil. In fact, I ordered a commission from uh, uh, Mike Grell for the nice. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. Ooh, uh, nice. Very nice. And then it was George Perez and John Byrne on the Avengers slash X-Men for John Byrne. Um, and then this weird thing happened with me where I started to not just look at the art, but I actually read the stories deeper. And I think Frank Miller's Daredevil, mm. um, The Dark Knight Returns, um, stuff like that got me into them more from a literary place. Neil Gaiman with uh, Sandman and Miracle Man, yeah. Alan Moore with Miracle Man and Swamp Thing. Um, you know, it just became like literature to me in a different way. And it sort of was like comics were evolving to a certain place. And then I had a period where, you know, life took over and I was still going to comic shops every Wednesday, but I wasn't reading as much, you know, I was just buying them yeah. just out of habit. And uh, so <laughs> when I started to write them, there was a big gap in between where the audience was, where I left off and where they were now. You know, it's like I was really wordy. And it's the, the funny thing about Twitter is people can tell you exactly what they hate about you. Um, <laughs> and so I remember the first time because there was this one guy um, who hated my Falcon run. And I was in this movie, The Post, with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. And my phone nice. was in my hand because as a writer uh, in Hollywood, someone's always calling you, emailing you about something. So it's a neurotic thing of holding your phone. And my <laughs> phone kept buzzing. And so I'm looking at my phone and it's Twitter and it's this guy and he's killing me. And he's taking pictures of dialogue that he hated and just screen capturing it, putting it up and making commentary. And nice. I'm thinking, my career is over. This is it. I never want to feel this feeling ever again. I want to fight this guy. Um, this is just <laughs> horrible. But under what he was saying, there was some truth. And he actually did me a favor. And I had to make an adjustment. I was writing to TV. I was writing TV jokes. I, was, I wasn't necessarily, the relationship between words and art, I hadn't really established my own voice in doing that. And so... I kind of look at Falcon number four as my first book ever. And those first couple of series were kind of like boot camp. They were sort of like getting me um, integrated into comics of today and um, yeah. finding my own voice and my own style as to how I want to put a book together. Uh, to to jump off that, like I, that series came right off of a uh, Secret Empire, and you even did the one shot yeah, for uh, Secret yes. Empire, and yes. that was such a I feel like a weird number one transition for Marvel, and it felt mm -hmm. like like I read a very interesting article article today about Secret Empire where um, this writer was talking about how when he first read it, um, he very much connected with the story, especially Falcon's story of mm -hmm. taking up the mantle, and but like the way Marvel handled it, they didn't seem like looking back on it now because it seemed like marvel like falcon was cap and then they just kind of took the stopped took yeah, yeah stopped it when it yeah. was when it, uh like it was building up like and i loved him as as cap it was it was a good change and like what they did to steve rogers was just crazy like making him hydra so and i felt like for you you know i I'm, i collect comics all the time so i was ready for what falcon what was coming next for falcon and mm -hmm. and i bought that series and i loved it honestly and I felt like you were in a tough spot because they changed Falcon so quickly, you know? Like I was, yeah, I mean, I was, but had I not gotten that opportunity, um, I wouldn't have figured it out. It's mm -hmm. like, um, 
I could have been in a, in a better position for me because I love horror and I love, you know, the tone of what I do, I think speaks more to that than absolutely mainstream, just superhero comics. Like, you know, I write them, I'm going to keep writing them. Um, but if you ask me what I, what feels natural to me, it's the Philadelphia type stuff and, and the books that I'm about to do. But, um, you know, again, I had to learn to, um, I had to learn how how it worked. It's one thing to say, oh man, I could write comics. Because usually the way that it works is comic writers more often than not would rather write, go from comics to writing television and film. Uh, I'm reverse engineering <laughs> from film and TV back to comics. And having never really done it professionally before, just you know the amateur stuff that I had done with my friends and people along the way, um, I needed to the trial by fire. I needed the boot camp. I needed to, to figure it out and to just jump in because um, even though there's pressure in it, that pressure sort of kind of makes you pay attention in a different kind of way. So, mm. so I want to ask, uh, how, how did you transition from writing TV and film to getting into the comic book industry? I was working on uh, runaways and um they liked what I was doing um, and I made it clear that I wanted to write comics. I was interested in writing comics. And so Marvel Television reached out to Marvel Publishing on my behalf and said, hey, this guy wants to do a book. And they gave me um, the Secret Empire story, the 10 pager to get my feet wet. And then uh, offered me Falcon uh, shortly thereafter. Nice. And the only thing that was tougher about Falcon for me was he didn't have other than that cat persona, he didn't have a definable thing, um, sort of like Daredevil and Batman and a bunch of other characters who have sort of a thing that they have. You know, he's a soldier. And in that soldiering, um, you can make him James Bond, you can make him a lot of different things. But um, unless he's fighting Hydro, he's doing something that's directly related to the larger idea of a, of a bigger thing. It was hard to do nuance and specificity coming off of, like you said a moment ago, and he was coming off this big thing of leading the Avengers and mm -hmm. he's Captain America and he's this, and that's just going to be a regular guy in the hood again. And so it's like making that <laughs> transition from there to there was sort of a leap. Um, but I love how you life. get, you put him up against Blackheart. That's yeah, awesome. I wanted to do something different. It was, and that was the thing I think that sold him on it was I didn't come with, um, just a small idea that he was going to fight some neighborhood guy mm. that I wanted him to fight a demon, have a reckoning with himself and try to go through this metaphysical experience and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, there are things, again, the, the hard part for me is as much as I appreciate it, I wish I was doing it today with what I know now versus what I knew then, which was absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. It almost felt like there was like some DNA of Philadelphia inside of that Falcon story. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, for anyone who has a story that they really, really want to tell, even if it's in their subconscious, it comes out in little ways. It comes out, you know, on the edges. And, you know, like I said, I'm glad I went through two or three series and figured out, tone and bumps and bruises and different art styles and different things before I got to Philadelphia. I hate it. I would have hated for Philadelphia to be the first thing. Mm. I like that. Nice. That's really cool. So I was, um, I so I noticed, uh, 
that in Quincredible, mm-hmm. Quinn's uh, love interest is named Brittany Barnes. Is, that, another, yeah, is there a personal a Brit- relation to that? There is. Brittany? Brittany is my daughter. Um, okay, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was going to. And in uh, Falcon, there's a Brianna as well. And both of them yes. are in Philadelphia. <laughs> And um, oh yeah, oh okay, that's the sisters. Yeah, so they're sisters, and yes. uh, they're sisters in Philadelphia as well. And it was that's my cool. attempt to try to get them to read comics. Like my son, he reads <laughs> comics, and it wasn't like really an effort to get him to read. But uh, my other kids, you know, they have no interest in comic books whatsoever. <laughs> oh, that's cool. All right, bye. And you know, I figured, well, if I put you in it. Maybe you would be more interested <laughs> actually reading it because, you know, ego and vanity, you're going to say, hey, I'm in it and take it to school and go, oh, wow, look, I'm in a comic book. It <laughs> absolutely care less. The thing she cares about, Brittany does, is there's a T-shirt with her on it. And so, you know, she wears the T-shirt, but she has absolutely no doubt. If you say Philadelphia, she said, oh, yeah, my dad writes that book. She has no <laughs> idea what it's about, why it's there, nothing. I'm wait, disappointed wait, So which daughter was the younger sister? Brittany is the, uh, she was the younger one. Um, I tried it with Brianna first and she ignored it. So I told her I was never putting her in a book again. <laughs> <laughs> And then Brittany was like, yeah, daddy put me in one and I put her in. And then she completely ignored it as well. Uh. Um, But Jason draws people so well that um, when he did this photorealistic thing where he actually took pictures of them and then he made it look exactly like they look, then it was like, you know, wow, I really want to be in this now. Still have, still haven't read it. That's cool. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask if they, if they're actually modeled off of them. Looks yeah, wise, he though. did. Cool. He did everything. You know, I try to, um, uh, I try to get them involved in just the creative process uh, with all of it. So <laughs> it, it's a difficult, it's difficult. It's difficult to get them interested in comics. Kids in general, you know, unless it's a kid book. Mm. Like kids these days. Kids with, um, Quincredible. More kids will read Quincredible because it looks more like a kid-friendly book. Mm-hmm. And whereas Philadelphia is kind of heavy and very violent and blah blah blah. I would have loved it as a kid though. But I was same. And we were talking about this earlier. Like you have a way of like just inserting humor even in like the darkest story you're telling. It's it's great. Thank you. I mean, that came from again, you know, Lando was mostly comedy, you know, it wasn't the, your traditional Star Wars um, fair. And so even in that and figuring out how to add in a joke without it taking away from the tone of the horror, you know, it's like, um, I hate funny horror. I hate it in general. You know, mm. you give me Dawn of the Dead, I'm happy. Give me Return of the Living Dead, not so much. <laughs> and th- the whole thing is if I'm laughing too much, I'm not scared anymore. If right. you're laughing and you're supposed to be scared, uh, you know, you take me out of it. So my thing was, if you can find humor within the scene, um, cool. You know, if I can put two or three jokes in there to kind of lighten the mood because I'm ripping off heads and arms and <laughs> talking about America's dying and you know all of these bad things that somehow the humor gives you a sense of hope and it gives you a sense of uh, something to look forward to. Hmm. I feel like I, uh, that's a oh sorry Jake oh no no, no you go you go uh, like 
a theme I was finding, especially like in Quinn credible in your Falcon story in Philadelphia too. There's like, uh, I guess the way I summed it up, you have a really great line that in Quinn credible, uh, where his parents are talking to him after they find out, you know, he's got powers. Um, and he, and they tell him, you know, saving the world's a matter of perspective. Everyone has a point of view of how the world should be, of who's the bad guy. Helping the world become better is the best thing we could do, but you have to have a good idea of what needs changing, not just listen to your frustrations. And I felt like throughout your stories, I really felt that in a lot of the characters, like in Philadelphia, um, I felt that with like Seesaw in a way, um, and in Quinn Credible, of course, but in Falcon, I felt like he was trying to instill that in Patriot. It, I don't know. Am I, am well, I off on that? No, you're, you're, you're pretty much on. I mean, I think... Um, Again, I'm old enough to remember when you had those uh, Dirty Harry movies that I loved as a kid where, you know, he's basically anybody who wasn't a cop or a white guy was a bad guy. And there were no lines drawn as to why, you know, they they had one, I think it was in Magnum Force where the Black Panthers were kind of like bad and Harry had the gun and he had to go and talk to him and they were sort of maligned as just being against society and there was Mm. no balance as to how they were portrayed to say why they were doing the things that they were doing and Mm. I think with any antagonist if you can give them a plausible reason as to why they're doing what they're doing they're not just bad you know right um, they have a perspective that they think it's like the Sith and the Jedi. It's like the Sith mm. have a point of view and right. the Jedi have a point of view. And those two just don't kind of mesh. And I think if you look at, unless it's just crime, unless I'm murdering somebody or killing somebody and something. Like that. <laughs> but when you talk about ideology, um, you know, ideology comes down to a matter of perspective. If you, regardless of, of where you come from, there are people who do really, heinous things in the name of believing that they're doing the right thing. Right. And they really don't typically get a voice when you have a a protagonist that's trying to stop them from doing something. You just look at the behavior, but under the behavior, there's a logic that's there Mm -hmm. on both sides that could be explored. And to me, because people rarely do that um, in stories, I think you have now it's like, you know, say that, you know, a lot of the guys that they're guys who sell drugs that are selling drugs because there's no infrastructure in their community. Right. And that's the only form of commerce. And that's the only form and way of taking care of your family and feeding your family. And, you know, the larger idea of America may look down on them and say, oh, my God, you're a drug dealer. You need to go to jail. But you put yourself and you have some empathy for that guy and you look at his community and he's like, Hey, I'm taking care of my family. I'm putting a roof over my head. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not stealing anything. And I'm not, again, I'm not justifying, you know, any of that stuff. All I'm saying is I'm empathetic to people who don't, who aren't as fortunate as people who don't have to do that thing. So being able to add perspective to, um, the conversation when you're telling a story to me adds a dimension to it. Sometimes it's a little bit more fair. Yeah. And that's a breath of fresh air for comics. I'll say, sorry, Jake, I feel like I'm talking too much. No, and I'll, no, say, no. I'll, I'll say one more thing that, that like the story does your, a lot of your stories don't just, it doesn't the hero or the protagonist is trying to find a way to solve the conflict without violence. It's always mm-hmm. like, it seems through forgiveness more, more than likely. And, and it feels like when the violence comes, um, it's usually coming from an emotional place, not just from I got to stop the bad guy thing. 
you know, if you look at Philadelphia, typically somebody's really angry, like mm-hmm. Jupiter or Abigail, or you know, the, there's Toppy. You know, it's like I'm I'm really angry, or someone has hurt me, and I really haven't gotten past um, the trauma of the past, which is what Philadelphia is about. Mm-hmm. The whole book is about trauma, but um. You know, it, it comes from a place that I think is more natural to where I think, you know, um, where I think anger and rage and violence comes from. I don't think it just comes from I want to hurt you. I think it comes from a lot of subconscious places in us where, you know, I, I see stories sometimes where people will rob somebody. And even after they've gotten a the purse, they'll beat the shit out of them. You know, and it's like there's something beyond just a desire for money or just a desire for the thing that is driving them to be even more mean spirited. Um, Right. That's not justice at all. Yeah, that's not just there's no way like I can't absolve that. But there's something going on in that individual. And I think there's something in America sometimes that is um, really, really angry and doesn't. and, And I look at anger as being really corrosive and. You know, people who wrestle with anger, and I think to lesser or greater degrees, most people do, but to the to those who aren't aware of their anger, they do things sometimes that um, they may not be conscious of. And in that lack of consciousness, um, you could do all types of things that in your better mind, you might not do. So, hmm. I have to ask just because of uh, earlier when you had uh, explain the situation about uh, a drug dealer. Are you a fan of The Wire at all? Did you watch The Wire? I'm a fan of The Wire. I come from that part of the world. I come from Annapolis. Oh, yeah, it's Baltimore. You're from Maryland. Yeah, and right? I lived in Baltimore. I went to high school my last year in Baltimore. Um, fathers in Baltimore, brothers and sisters there now. Um, I'm a big fan of The Wire. Um, I think seasons three, four, one, Two and five is how I go. That's um, exactly how I would rank it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm it's, serious. It's, I'm so serious. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also a fan of Homicide Life on the Street, which I look at as the Wire Junior, like right before the Wire, which was my still my favorite TV show of all time. Or the Corner? Did you watch the Corner? I watched the Corner, but the Corner was so depressing. It's like the yeah. Corner was so <laughs> sad. It was. Like, sad. There was no, you know, everybody took an ass whipping on the Corner. <laughs> No, there was no like light at all, um, you know, um, but, you know, for the other two, um, you know, and, and I like it's funny, like even in Philadelphia, there's a version of Philadelphia that could be like the corner to where it's just sadness every week. Mm. But I try to like the wire. They're different class distinctions. It's like you have the people who are on the street. And you have the vampires who are kind of mindless that just kind of devour people and do what they do. But then you have this elite thing sort of um, explaining uh, in very eloquent terms um, why they do what they do and how the world works. Mm. And I think um, for me, that's what I, I appreciate more than anything else, because, like I said, I, it's hard to get luck. Well, it's easy to get lost in despair, but um, I got enough depression to wrestle with to watch. So. <laughs> More depressed. I, I did have a, a question, especially tagging on to the comment about the elites. I, I was wondering, is John Adams... Uh, okay, sorry, let me try to word this correctly. Uh, him turning a lot of the residents of Philadelphia, especially like urban Philadelphia, into vampires, was that an analogy for like... 
don't know, like white politicians out of touch who through their policies may be sucking the life out of like inner city communities? No, no, uh, you're not too, too far um, away from what I was thinking. Mine was more of, you know, there's a, there's a 99% and there's a 1% uh, in America. And the lower you get within the, the, the framework of that 99%, you get, you, you get to people who don't really have a voice. Mm-hmm. And I looked at John Adams as someone who, would look at those people and want to build an army because there's something within them that once they get power and the perspective that comes with immortality, um, they would feel something within themselves that would make them a little more loyal um, to him and sort of see the, uh, the benefit of his ideology um, more so than trying to get the elite because the elite already live elite lives. You know, they've already got money. They've already got power. They already have all of the stuff that as human beings um, of a certain mindset think is really important in life. But the people who have nothing uh, only have what they have and dream of having more. And he's sort of giving them everything. Um, Mm. He's taken away the need. I mean, certainly for people of color, well, black people Um, since slavery, I think, there's been a there's a foundational reset of survival. How do I survive? Because there aren't a lot of resources in inner cities. Um, there's not a lot of infrastructure. So you're always thinking about even hip hop talks about it. Sometimes I got more money than you. I have more this. Or I have more that. And everything's about what I have, uh, my, my ability to hold on to what I have and those types of themes. What happens when there's no need for any of that? What happens when survival has been taken off the table and I'm going to be immortal from this point forward? Um, I'm stronger than anything that could hurt me. I'm immortal. You can't really do a drive by and kill me. Cops can't come by and rough me up. Um, You know, I don't need public assistance. I don't need a job. I don't need any of those things that typically I fought for. Um, my entire life and have watched generations of people fight for before me, it's really a matter of, um, you know, obtaining blood. But what I try to put with my vampires is if I have immortality, I still have a desire for purpose. Why am I here? Hmm. And Hmm. I hadn't seen that before. And, you know, I'm a huge fan. I go back to the universal monsters and, um, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula and Nosferatu before that and the hammer films with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and the Anne Rice ones you spoke of and Salem's lot and a myriad of vampires in between and to lesser or greater degrees, they all just want blood, you know, near dark had a kind of cool thing where they traveled around in a van and dust till dawn, they were in a bar and, But for the most part, they still just want blood and they want to be spooky. And I wanted to add something to it to where I have to do something more with my existence than just blood. Um, I think I have Seesaw on the line saying, you know, I scramble for money when I was a person and now that I'm a vampire, I'm scrambling for blood and I'm more than that. Hmm. Um, so the idea was just to kind of evolve past that general idea because you know when people say oh my god another vampire story the hardest thing to do to get people to read it <laughs> is because people think another vampire story right. yeah. what could you do that's different in a vampire story and i'm like well i i try to do a bunch of things that are different and um you know so there you go 
Um, you were mentioning all of the vampire stories that uh, you've uh, talked about, and uh, you mentioned Salem's Lot, which is like one of my favorite vampire stories. And honestly, your vampires in Philadelphia—if there was any like vampire lore—that it reminded they were those two. Like, I didn't think of it until you mentioned it just now. Have a little bit of overlap. Were they a big part of your like lore for what the vampires did? Yeah, Stephen King in general. I mean, I think um, the way Stephen King wrote, I was a, a stand-in on a movie, The Green Mile, because I really wanted to meet uh, Stephen King. Not so much that I look anything like Michael Clark Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think they knew that, though. No I don't think they knew. You could tell the difference. It was like, oh he's big and black, I'm big and black. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I just wanted to meet Mr. King, and I did. And he was very, very gracious and everything I wanted a hero to be. But um, Salem's Lot is one of those books that I've read and uh, listened to because I listen to audiobooks now because I don't have a lot of time uh, over and over and over and over again. And um, I would be lying if I didn't say the tone of how he presents the humanity of his vampires doesn't influence the way that I sort of do the same because in Salem's Lot, you just have this community, you know, then you have the Marston house and then you have, you know, the vampire comes to town, but you get to know all of these people first and mm -hmm. they have, you know, these messed up relationships. And then slowly when they become vampires, somehow the nature of the relationship is influenced by the vampire. It's not just about the vampire coming to suck the blood. He's also sort of corrupting the nature of what you thought the relationship was. And I do the same thing. I do it more from a soap opery place between father and son, because they're the ones that have to go back and forth in their relationship. But, um, you know, the same thing with Abigail and John and Seesaw and his grandmother and any of the vampires that talk for the most part have some form of a human relationship that they're wrestling with and trying to overcome um, because I'm sort of interested in that as well. Can I ask it? Like, I, I find it unbelievable that you haven't written, like Marvel has not approached you for like a blade series. No, uh, I even asked it one time, but I think that <laughs> nice. the way that uh, I, I think, and maybe one day the opportunity will present itself, but and because Blade was the first job I had in Hollywood when I oh, lived wow. in my car. Um, oh, wow. I, um, that's, I lived in my car for like a year. Uh, and I had uh, worked on movies and TV shows back on the East Coast. And I'd made relationships and I got called to do the Blade movie. And I really didn't know who Blade was. I knew who Dracula was, but I didn't know who mm. Blade was. Mm. And I remember buying the comic book before I got the job on the first day, uh, the Blade and Dracula <laughs> intro. Uh, Got it out at, uh, I think it was, um, which comic book? Golden Apple on Melrose. At the time, yeah. it was further in on Melrose. It wasn't as far down on Melrose as it is now. Um, and I learned who he was, and it was a great movie. And I'm actually in it for a hot second. <laughs> because in the Blood Club, uh, all the extras, as soon as you dump blood on them, started running out of the room. And my job was to be the big security guard oh, that shit. would stop them from... Um, running out of the room. Uh, but all of that to say, love Blade, um, one day hope to play in the Blade world, but any of the 
Marvel or DC horror comics. I love Swamp Thing more than anything mm. else um, in the world. I love that. There's a connection, a thing that they do every once in a while. Alan Moore had a run uh, during his run where he did vampires. Uh, they were vampires underwater, I think. Oh, well, but, aquatic vampires. Yeah, they do uh, because they didn't need air. They needed blood and they would come out and like fish and they would bite people and then disappear to this city underwater like Atlantis, like a dead Atlantis. It was kind of a cool. Wow, that's sick. <laughs> and, I never um, heard of that. That's I kind of want to read that. Uh, yeah. I think it's issues 38 and 39. I could be wrong. Um, of Saga of the Swamp Thing. But uh, DC does this thing with Batman and Swamp Thing where they team up sometimes to battle uh, monsters, things. And I had a story for you know, that type of team up. I mean, I'm sort of in this place where comics, you don't come to comics to get rich. Mm. Um, mm. So for me, it's the purity of writing to that part of me that's still innocent. Like, you know, movies and TV shows, there's so much interference with what you finally see, what you have in your head and what ends up on TV. Very rarely are they the same thing. But with comics, you know, it's sort of close, you know, unless um, unless like one of the big two has an agenda for how they want to present a certain character. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly with Image and independent comics, nobody's ever told me no to anything. Um, That's awesome. I had to yeah. hire an editor to come in and, um, <laughs> you know, to, to look at my stuff and make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm hanging in there and doing the right thing. But um, so, yeah. The, I, I do have a question. Uh, Toppy from Philadelphia mm-hmm. is his look based off of like the classic, um, like uh, Baba Legba or Baron Semedi look from a little bit of Baron. Um, yeah. I wanted, you know, it, it would have been very easy, especially when I'm dealing with um, characters of color, to all make them sort of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted Adams to have like his own kind of guard that he had fashioned over the course of time. Hmm. And I wanted everybody to come from a different era, which would give me selfishly as a writer, different periods of time to sort of play in. So Hmm. I'm not just dealing with slavery. I'm dealing with the civil war, dealing with reconstruction, world war one, world war two, the seventies, you know, just Hmm. different people that, because I'm dealing with time that Adams has bumped into on his journey of being a vampire so that I'm kind of keeping um, time, the idea of time present in the story. So really Jason was the one that said, um, you know, what if he was like an undertaker, you know, or something like that. And immediately I went to like undertaker in the WWE. (laughs) And and so, you know, since he had the hat, he had all of the stuff and I worked on the show American gods Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Mr. Ibis uh, being that guy who uh, not only keeps the records and all of that, but is sort of like the undertaker. Uh, I was like, how about if I did a play on that and a look that kind of went that way? He was a man of distinction. That's the hat. Because I was wondering if any, I was getting Serpent on the Rainbow vibes. West Love Cravens. Serpent in the Rainbow. That's a great yeah, I do too. So, I love <laughs> uh, when to hear you scream. Um, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Zakes? Uh, yeah, Zakes McCauley or something. Yeah, I think Zakes he's, McCauley or something. I think like he's um, no longer with us at this point, but it's Bill Pullman. 
Yeah, um, Coleman. We're gonna we're gonna torture the only white guy in this movie. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, no black. Uh, he he did live, but he went through some shit uh, along yeah. the way. But uh, I was one of Wes Craven's one of my favorite Wes Craven movies. Uh, Me too. I saw it when I was like freshman year of college. I'd never seen it before, and I was yeah. like, oh, man, this is cool. No, oh, I loved it. I loved the way it was shot. Um, cause the people under the stairs was fun, but it made no sense to me. Um, I love that movie. <laughs> it made absolutely that movie, no sense to me. You're right. It made no sense, but God, if it didn't scare the shit out of me. Shocker. Time. I think it was shocker. It was another one about a, a deadly friend. I think it was, it was like this robot thing that was coming after you. Then there was deadly blessing about Amish people. Um, that sort of was scary. That was the first West Craven movie I saw. Ooh, Amish um, vampires? No, you gonna write just, that next? Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> then it was the Freddy movies in between. Uh, Freddy was like the top. Freddy, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. blew the ceiling off of everything. But, um, you know, so yeah, Serpent in the Rainbow after Freddy, I think, is my favorite West Craven movie. But is nice. there is there any horror movies from like maybe the past few years that you've been a huge fan of? I I dig the Blumhouse stuff. I mm. think in comparison to um, uh, the torture porn horror stuff, I was never really a big fan no, of that. I like, I like the first Saw, um, yeah. But then as the Saws went on and the Hostels went on and. It's like, how mean can we be to a right. human being? Yeah. Hostel was so <laughs> tough to watch. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to just, how can I grind up a human being and do bad things? <laughs> um, but The Conjuring, um, there's another there's another series, um, Insidious. Did you watch Hereditary at all? I didn't see Hereditary yet. I've heard things about it. I have no idea what Insidious is about. I have no idea with um, any of the. I've watched them all. I have no idea. <laughs> um, like Annabelle and all of them. Um, you know the the Jordan Peele ones don't feel like classic horror to me. They're more like Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. But as far as like the conjuring, going into a spooky, um, a haunted house or those types of things, that speaks to my Cole Shack, the Night Stalker, that type of thing. there's like an ongoing joke, like for whatever reason, whenever we bring up a movie, I haven't seen it, but for some reason I've seen the night stalker. I don't know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Patrick Reynolds just did a commission. I don't know if I can reach it over here with the character from my new series and Cole Shack together. Oh, they kind of do us. They kind of do awesome. a similar thing. I'll see if I can reach it uh, before we get off. But yeah, um, I love Cole Shack. The first two movies of the week written by the late, great Richard Matheson. Um, Best thing as a kid that that saved. I had a I had a rough childhood of sorts, uh, more emotionally than anything else. Hmm. But in between, it was some really cool vampire stuff. And <laughs> Richard Matheson is probably the reason I'm not a serial killer to this day. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's awesome. I had to ask. Uh, so, is Philadelphia? Are you gonna are you gonna make it into a show? Yeah, I've written a pilot. It's been optioned. Um, I think we're attaching directors and talent and stuff to it now. Um, nice. Like Phil Morris, um, right? As James Sangster senior. Uh, we'll see. Um, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, it's a group. Um, it's sort of a, a group decision as to who gets cast and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm very, very happy with the pilot. I mean, I think it's probably the best script I've ever written um, wow. in the form that it's in now. Um, and I'm hoping, I mean, I think when you're a fanboy and you grow up loving this stuff, 
and you think to yourself, man, if I ever get the shot to do that thing that I've always wanted to do, Philadelphia is sort of that for me. Um, but I got to convince other people that it would be the right thing for the rest of the world. So we'll see. Oh man. I feel like that should not be a hard sell. It's so amazing. Come on. I hope it's not on me. I would have it on TV uh, this fall if I could. I mean, I think it's just a matter of, um, it's a matter of finding the right home and people, uh, you know, people responding the way that um, you guys responded, that I respond. I think um, there's a place for it. Um, I think in the pantheon of all this television that we see right now, that's different, but Logic isn't necessarily why they make TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> who, who in your ideal like world would you cast at least as let's say, I don't know, John Adams and then the Sangsters. Um, I would love, this would never happen, but if Paul Giamatti. <laughs> yes, that's what I said. Yeah. That would be fantastic. It'll never that's happen. What I so said. if anybody's listening to this and saying, wow, he's thinking Paul Giamatti. I'm just saying what I would like. Um, and if Andre Brower could be um, Sangster Senior, only Ooh. because I love the Frank Pimbleton character from Homicide. Hmm. And as I was writing him, I was thinking Frank Pimbleton without a soul. Um, because the Frank Pemberton character from Homicide had issues with his faith. He was a Catholic who didn't understand why the world was moving in a direction that it was moving in. And um, Sangster's just hardened by everything that he's seen. And it's just made him cold. And ironically, being dead is bringing back his humanity. Mm -hmm. So... um, Jake said oh, yeah. that too. That that episode, I said yeah. that too. I said, I loved that. Like, especially with the relationship between him and his son of which you said in the beginning that like it was strained. I love that. He's, he was more human when he was dead, especially when you think about like classic vampire lore and they're devoid of all emotion, humanity. And then that their relationship was reconstructed or, you know, made yeah, stronger. Yeah, yeah. That was and, awesome. And that's sort of, thank you. That sort of came from, um, when my father died, I didn't meet my father until I was 17, 18 years old. I'd seen him a couple of times through life, but we didn't really have a relationship. And I went to live with him when I was 17. And it was like being with a stranger, even though we had the same DNA. Hmm. And then we went through a long period of not talking at all. And he passed away. And I always wondered if we had more time, would that have changed the nature of our relationship? And I don't think that time necessarily is the healer of emotional trauma. I think it's really work that it takes to make that work. And so the Sangsters, you know, one of them has all the time in the world because, you know, he's dead. But um, both of them have sort of made a commitment to work together. And, um, you know. Uh, I always, that's the hope that's in the series. That's the part that's the anti pulling off arms and ripping off heads. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I mean, yeah, it is really well done. And that's what I, that's what I noticed too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, is Hell Hall a real place in Philadelphia? No. Um, yeah. I always wanted a, you know, when I thought about doing a urban um, vampire series, I wanted like a, a, Uh, like Dracula has his castle, you know, Dracula's castle in Transylvania. And I wanted to use classic vampire stuff, like, 
you know, Hell Hall was going to be my Dracula's castle. I'm sure there's a big Victorian building or there's a big housing project or there's a big something that you could shoot and make it look ominous. But um, that was basically what it was. It was a playoff of trying to find a, um, a Dracula's castle. That's cool. That's cool. I never even thought of that. And in Salem's Lot too, at the Marston House in the basement, there's this cool scene in the miniseries uh, where near the end, and I love the way even in the book he describes it, where all of the people you've gotten to know from the neighborhood are sort of crawling out, uh, coming after Ben Mears. And mm. that's sort of where, um, and when uh, Sangster's in uh, Hell Hall and he's coming home, or so to speak, you see the vampires hanging upside yeah, hanging. They're all over the place. It's like those are the citizens of North Philadelphia now in this new construct of what their futures will be. So oh, man. that was That's inspired by that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so the official name for uh, Philadelphia fans is Kiladites. Well, I've heard so many, <laughs> there's so many plays on the Philadelphia name. I remember there's two groups of people. There's a group of people that say, man, Philadelphia, that's so cool. Or man, Philadelphia, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard before. Um, those there's two groups. And uh, so when it comes to names of what the fans will be, for three days in a row, I heard Kilodite. So when I put that afterward uh-huh. at the end of the uh, at issue twelve, uh, Kilodite was on my mind. So I called them all Kilodites. Nice. So rather we were, little fan base though. We are we are trying to find a name for our small fan base. We don't know what to call our fans yet. Yeah, <laughs> we'll come up with something. I'm sure. <laughs> sure. Or codines, like for Cody, codines or something. Oh, <laughs> Cody. Cody. We'll come That's up with perfect. something. Because, you know, codine, the chronic thing, Cody, there's a thing. Awesome. I, I, so I noticed two similarities between Quincredible and, uh, I didn't finish Quincredible, but Quincredible and Philadelphia, um, and that is interracial relationships, um, mm-hmm. specifically with Sangster Jr. And then when Brittany Barnes introduced her boyfriend to Quinn. Yeah, I think um, I'm not responsible for that one in Quinn Credible. She just drew him that way. Oh, okay. Um, I had nothing to do with that one. The one with uh, Sangster Jr., um, she's Cuban. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, uh, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't something that I said, uh, you know, uh, we need diversity in relationships. <laughs> You know, they could be, if this ever becomes a TV show, uh, who knows what the ethnicities will be. The Sykes's will be black and John yeah. Adams and Abigail will be white. Everybody <laughs> else, who's this? She saw probably be black too, but everybody else, who knows what they'll be. Cool. Yeah. I was wondering if that was a, from a real life influence. Nah. Nah. Okay. Um, so speaking of TV, did you watch WandaVision? I watched the first couple. I haven't had time because uh, the show that I'm writing and producing starts shooting soon. So we're in pre-production and it's a lot going on right now. So it's hard Mm -hmm. to sit and actually, you know, warrant without guilt, guilty pleasure of sitting and watching television. (laughs) It's a hard thing to do right now. Uh, May I ask, is that show... Is that show the Lakers documentary or is that done? No, it's not a documentary. It's a scripted show. Oh, okay. um, It's a huge show. And uh, I'm actually acting in it, which was not my choice. (laughs) (laughs) Someone thought, hey, we could use Rodney. I'm the head of Lakers security. Um, 
<laughs> I haven't backed out quite yet. Um, we start shooting in mid-April. So we were start we were supposed to shoot a year ago, but COVID kind of shut everything down. And um, now we're ramping back up. And um, you know, so there's that. I'm doing the Oscars this year. Um oh, wow. I'm doing um I have a Tiger Woods miniseries. I'm looking at my board. I have a Tiger Woods miniseries. Um, trying to get Philadelphia off the ground. I have a show, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, based on <laughs> uh, <laughs> an animated series at HBO Max. Uh, we can't say the name yet. Um, the Lakers show. I have a movie, a monster movie with New Regency that I have to get, have to get written pretty quickly because they're mad. Uh, <laughs> I have a... Uh, what else? I have another movie. Um, Man. And I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve comic books that I'm writing at the same time. Holy moly. So Shit. all of that's <laughs> sort of happening at the same time. And it's there are these moments where it all converges and I'm I'm no fun to be around when all of that happens. <laughs> can, can, we, can we honestly just say thank you for taking the time to talk to us? Oh, no, yeah, after okay. hearing all that, <laughs> you're very welcome. This is sort of a um, a welcome uh, reminder that there's life outside of being in this room uh, <laughs> over a uh, a laptop or a, a pad with a pen. <laughs> so I have a personal question. I like to write not comic books by any means, but comic book characters that I come up with my own universe. Mm-hmm. I came up with a villain. Do you do this high? Cause I see the smoke at the same time. Is this something like you hit a thing and you say, you know what? I'm coming up with a character right now. <laughs> I feel creative. I mean, yeah. So that too. Okay. Or sometimes okay. it just goes, so I, I came up with a character uh, named 5G who. Okay. Uh, yeah, I want to ask, yeah. ask your advice on this. And so what I want to do is that is he's either uh there was a shootout near a 5g cell phone tower between okay. five different factions of gangs mm-hmm. and so but the it 5G sounds like a math tower, equation it sounds like a math <laughs> problem that i'm working up but go ahead oh i'm, I'm terrible at math so <laughs> you don't have to worry about that 5g tower falls on them and irradiates mm-hmm. them but fuses them into one so it takes five gangsters and puts them into one that's why he's 5g <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. No, no, no. I'll tell you what. This is my advice. This is my advice. Okay. I I say write it, you know, write it, then go to sleep. When you wake up the next morning, and you if you look at it again and it makes sense, Uh keep going. Good thing I didn't tell you about any of my other characters. <laughs> Anytime you have to describe your characters with your hands, it's usually a, a journey that's you know fraught with peril. Whenever you say, "Look, so there's this dude, and the dude, like he can't swim, but the bad guys are in water, and he really wants to get him," it's like it's you're using your hands to explain the story. It's like you know, that's always bad. And people do it with me all the time. Look, man, I got this idea. You're going to love this. 
And it's like, and I just look at your hands and I just, I just, I want to order pizza. Oh man, all right. Well, I'm super glad I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> by all means, by all means. What? It's not the worst idea I've ever heard. Wait, what if he makes, what if he makes 5G a vampire? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know. And he can suck the, the 5G out of the, out of the ether <laughs> in the air. Now you're just going left. Now you just now it's just you know it, you when you left it at 5G, you left it up to me to interpret however I <laughs> wanted, and I could go from there. And now when you're I, I killed it, act, no, I killed it. Yeah, I'm when you add a second act to it, now I'm like, okay, now he's just just you know he's just wasting my time now. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to do any more of that. So I no, guess on that good. note, so thank you so much for coming out. It was really cool of you to. Get but yeah, we were talking about the edibles, and I promised someone that I would oh. say, oh yes. Just marry delivery.app is the place to go for a myriad of things that, you know, uh, as far as cannabis and all of that is consumed. But I personally get gummies so I can go to sleep because if I start thinking anytime after 930, I won't sleep for days. So <laughs> I need to be able to sleep. So there you go. Thank you so much. For you guys look like you. you can sleep hey, really yeah, easy. Cody yeah. can sleep easy. I wish. That I is so true. I wish I could be Cody. If I could come back and be Cody for a day, when I heard Cody's voice, Cody reminded me of the kid that would like mess with me on the playground, but be my friend at the same time. <laughs> you know, it was a weird kind of protecting thing, but he would still like, you know, be the one that would antagonize me and then protect me at the same time from other kids. So I need him, but I don't necessarily want him. It's a weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how we feel about him on the podcast. He's the live one. He's the guy that comes in. He's the closer. He's Cody the looks. The he's the looks of the show. Yeah, he's got a thing. He's the guy. It's like, yeah, we got us, but we got Cody too. Got yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got Cody. It should just be comics and Cody, honestly, at this point. Well, right? Hey, comics and Cody. Y'all can, I don't want anything. <laughs> you know? Thank you so much for coming on. When can we expect uh, Volume yeah. 2 of Philadelphia? To come volume out? 2. Uh, I think it's March the 31st. I think in two weeks. Um, nice. my birthday. Volume nice. 2 will be here. And um, it's a beautiful book. I'm not saying it just because I had something to do with it, but all the variant covers that whatever Jason does, I don't even want to know to get these artists to come in and do covers for us. Um, it's a gallery in the back beyond the story. There's mm. just... Um, yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah. So, and every issue is constantly sold out. It's so hard to get that issue if it's not yeah. a, any issue of Philadelphia. If it's if it's not added to your pull list, is what I'm saying. That's how you get this book. Yeah, I went to four comic book shops in LA. Managed to find you at the Comic Bug on Overland. Shout out to them. Ah, uh, yeah, Earth Two on uh, Sherman Oaks. Uh, Cara and those guys who I go to, nice. they've got a bunch that I think um, I signed. It's like ten or fifteen of them that are still there. So nice, number ones. Nice. So if you nice. want them, there they go. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you, thank you for coming so much. Welcome, yeah. guys. You guys awesome. take it easy. I hope I get to talk to you soon, and um, we'll talk soon. Yeah, we'd All love right. to have you thank back you, on. Yeah, All right, guys. Bars, thank you. everyone. Take it easy, Cody. Peace. You be good. <laughs> <laughs> you too thank you
Hi, you're listening to Comics and Chronic, and I'm Jacob H. I'm Cody Cannon. And I'm Anthony Iannaccio. And you can tune in every Thursday to hear new episodes of Comics and Chronic. And make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Comics and Chronic. That's Comics, the letter N, Chronic. We'll see you guys next week. Woo! Peace.